Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. And Bruce, last week, last Wednesday, I was at Notre Dame uh, for the media day there, and I thought that would be a pretty uh, uneventful visit. Turns out it was the beginning of a very newsy week for Notre Dame, most of it not very good. No, they, you know, it's they had one of these runs where they had six players arrested in two separate instances, incidences, instances, incidents, uh, and incidents. Yes, I was going to get to it. Uh, beyond that, as you are well aware of, they had an interesting decision on the quarterback front, uh, which we'll get to a lot more a little later on as well. Um, you know, the big news out of Notre Dame, though, over the weekend was that the biggest name involved in those incidents was Max Redfield. He is a returning starter. He came in as a huge recruit. He has had a very up-and-down career, and he has had some some problems there before. He was suspended for the bowl game and didn't play last winter against Ohio State. Uh, from what I had heard, really what was kind of the last straw for him was – Brian Kelly was you knew the team was going to have a little time off after training camp and said, you know, kind of gave them a stern, hey, don't be that guy. Watch yourself. Don't do anything stupid. And these guys got in some trouble, got arrested, and that was it. They booted Max Redfield. And I think to Notre Dame's credit, I will say this, and, and I tweeted something along these lines, you know, these days with players getting in trouble – you kind of shrug your shoulders when it comes to quote disciplining and it's like, Oh, that's an internal manner. So you think they probably, you know, had to do extra conditioning or whatever. And we've seen, it's not just one school, you know, we've seen plenty of cases where a guy gets in trouble with the law, maybe the charges stick, maybe they don't. And then they don't miss any playing time. In the case of Max Redfield, he's gone and he's gone at a position they really need because they don't have much experience at all at the safety position. Correct. And, you know, I think it's, it's it's important to bring up that what you just said about Brian Kelly and discipline because I feel like so many times on this podcast over the off season we've been criticizing a coach whether it was Dan Mullen with Jeffrey Simmons whether it was Nick Saban with Cam Robinson um, obviously Baylor there have been so many cases where the coach really didn't do much of anything um, beyond maybe what the minimum amount of discipline you know you could possibly get away with in Cam Robinson's case. Once the uh, prosecutor in Louisiana dropped those charges under really bizarre circumstances, then Nick Saban went right along with it. In this case, in his statement, Brian Kelly says, you know, we realize that this still has to go through. You know, he has due process in terms of the legal system and, and certainly the school. I mean, he hasn't been kicked out of school, but we have certain expectations here. He didn't meet them, and he's gone. And to your point, um, this is a big blow for Notre Dame's defense. Uh, when I was there on Wednesday, uh, 
so, you know, we, we got to watch practice, and then we had the Brian Kelly press conference where he dropped the news that both quarterbacks, Deshaun Kaiser and Malik Zaire, are going to play the opener against Texas. And then we interviewed players, and then we interviewed coaches. And I spent some time with Brian Van Gorder, the defensive coordinator there. And on the one hand, he's, he, you know, didn't mince words and said, this is the most talented group we've had. And he's been there three years. And, you know, that's a little bit surprising to hear because last year's defense had some real studs on it. Uh, like, you know, uh, first and foremost, Jalen Smith, but also Sheldon Day, Joe Schmidt, and so on. And they're gone. But more of his time was about how young these guys are, how inexperienced, and how and I remember this exact phrase, we have some guys who have started for us a couple years, but they need to be more productive on the field. So basically, the guys who you're counting on to be the leaders of this defense um, haven't quite played at that elite level yet, maybe with the exception of Cole Luke, their cornerback. Max Redfield is one of the guys he was counting on for that. Now he's gone, and now they're going to be starting probably a true freshman, an early enrollee, Devin Studstill at, at safety, along with Drew Tranquil, who's coming off and ACL surgery. Yet, um, even before this news, my takeaway from Notre Dame was they should be really good on offense. They should be able to run the ball. Both quarterbacks are really good. I think it could be a, a long year for that defense. Do you, are you having a little buyer's remorse of having them as a top 10 team? Yeah, I don't think they're a top 10 team. Did I have them as a top 10 team? So they, <laughs> I can't remember. Yeah. I know they're number 10 I, in the I think AP you had them poll. 10 or 11, yeah. Yeah, and they're number yeah. 10 in the AP poll. You know, it's one of those years, every year you look at Notre Dame's schedule before the season, and some years it looks brutal, and some years it doesn't, and oftentimes it ends up playing out the exact opposite of what you expect. But at least as of today, it's not like this is the, the worst schedule they've ever played. But I will say this, I, I assume you, when you did your Big 12 predictions, I know I did, counted that opener at Texas as a win for Notre Dame. I'm not so sure anymore. I think this is turning into a a more interesting matchup than I would have anticipated. Of course, we don't know yet how good Shane Michelle is going to be in his first start and just how improved this uh, Texas offense could be. But we know they have two great running backs and some promising receivers, including uh, some, some help they got, obviously, from Baylor in that regard. Can they take advantage of what should be, you know, a pretty, I would assume, pretty shaky Notre Dame secondary? And also unproven Notre Dame pass rush. You know, Isaac Rochelle is basically the one guy up there um, who's shown that. He's very high on Dalen Hayes, a freshman, uh, as being the next stud pass rusher there, but he's only a freshman. I don't know. I think there's a lot of questions there. And then, of course, above and beyond all that is, and we will talk about this with our, our guest coming up here in a minute, Jordan Palmer, but, you know, I was there that day when he announced that Kaiser and Zaire are going to basically share the job and... Neither of those guys seemed pleased with the decision. Uh, well, I mean, I've never seen guys openly express how ticked they were. Not, and, and this isn't like one guy lost the job. Just the fact that he didn't give the job to either of them. Zaire made that comment about, uh, he just kept saying over and over again, some variation of, well, I'm a pro, you know, I do what the coaches tell me. But then he would say something like, you know, it's not an ideal situation. I'm going to have to turn chicken crap into chicken salad. That was his exact quote. And Deshaun Kaiser, from the second he sat down at that table, had a stern look on his face. And somebody said, how you doing? Just, you know, casually. And he said, I've had better days. And then it just kind of went from there. Uh, 
I don't think Brian Kelly's naive to that. He had to know they would be ticked. But I guess he's confident that they'll kind of put their egos in check and handle this. Yeah. One other interesting note about their schedule. And look, they also, by the way, lost, you know, in addition to all the good players you mentioned on the defense, Will Fuller's gone. Alizé Jones was a tight end who they were counting on. He's a stretch the field kind of guy. He's out for the season with academic uh, issues. Uh, one one scheduling quirk I think is we talk about some of the some of the inexperience in the secondary. The way their schedule sets up is unique. You mentioned Shane Bouchelle is likely the new starter there at Texas. They play Michigan State week three. Obviously, there's no Connor Cook. They're breaking in a new starter there. Uh, they play Stanford in early in mid October. They're breaking in a new starter. Uh, Navy has a new quarterback. There, I mean, he's not a you know they don't throw it much, but obviously Keenan Reynolds was fantastic. He's gone. Virginia Tech will have a new starting quarterback, and USC with late in the year will have the one place that has a returning really established starter who can who's very very talented is Miami, who they play around Halloween. Right. Uh, it's a home game with Brad Kaya. Now you'd think by by the end of the year both. USC and Virginia Tech would have their quarterback situation sorted out. But uh, it is interesting to see so many, so many inexperienced quarterbacks on the schedule. To your point about losing Will Fuller, um, that was another takeaway from practice. Their receivers, very inexperienced. They dropped a lot of passes that day. Obviously, you don't know if that's normal or if that was just one practice. Torrey Hunter is really the only established guy after that. They're going to be counting on uh, freshmen, sophomores, guys who haven't played before. I will say, though, I mean, even before he made that announcement, I noticed much the same thing. Kaiser and Zaire are both really good. And this was not a case of, you know, in in making this decision and, and, and justifying it to the media, this was not like, well, neither guy's distinguished himself, so we're just going to continue the competition. Uh, kind of like how Nick Saban's done, actually, the last couple of years at Alabama, those first few games. This is both guys are so good that I can't justify sitting one the entire game. So they're both going to play. Not clear how, situationally, whatnot. Uh, he said if you, if you list the top five playmakers on our team, they are two of them. Obviously, they can both get it done running and passing. So you've got these great quarterbacks. The question is, can they take advantage? Are the receivers good enough to take advantage? I think offensive line, they're really good. And running back, they're three or four deep there now that Folston's back from his injury, Josh Adams. So there's a lot to like on that offense. Um, but again, I'm skeptical of the defense, and I'm wondering how the Zaire-Kaiser uh, situation will play out, whether it'll affect chemistry or not. Yeah, listen, from the way we're talking, it sounds like this is an 8-4, and 9-3 and three team at best. Yeah, uh, you know, you never know, like you said, how the schedule will play out, but I don't, you know, I don't see it as a playoff team. Now, last year's team came pretty close to making the playoff, and, you know, they lost two games to the teams that finished, I believe, two and three in the final rankings in Clemson and Stanford, both at the last second. Uh, That was a really good Notre Dame team. Probably people didn't give it enough credit. They go and get blown out by Ohio State in the bowl game when Jalen Smith gets in. I'm not saying they would have won, but Jalen Smith... (laughs) Going out of the game so early obviously didn't help. Uh, and so I think that maybe they get discredited a little bit. That was a really good team, but I don't think uh, any notion that they're just going to reload, I think, is a bit is being a bit optimistic. Um, Can, am I jumping the gun here by asking you to go on record and say you're calling 
Texas over Notre Dame week one upset? Not ready to go there yet. Sorry. Because here's the thing. I know all this, you know, firsthand stuff about Notre Dame. Texas has been in cloak and dagger mode. Uh, Supposedly, Gerard Hurd has made a nice transition to receiver. Supposedly, the receivers look good. But uh, we don't know. Texas is a big mystery to me. As you know, we've talked about it on here. I do think they'll be much better. I picked them to go eight and four. Um, I could see it being a little more than that. But, uh, you know, I'm saying all these kind of critical things in Notre Dame. I don't know. I don't have a um, corresponding report or something from Texas to say, and they're going to be really good. All right. Well, since you're not ready to go there, are you ready to go to our guest? I am. Tell us a, tell us a little bit about our guest. Okay. Our guest is the less famous brother of, Ouch. of Heisman Trophy winner and Cincinnati Bengals former star and Arizona Cardinals star quarterback Carson Palmer, and that is Jordan Palmer. Jordan spent about a decade in the NFL himself as a quarterback. He is a guy who knows about as much about college QBs and their skill sets and them as people as as probably anybody we could have on because he has really been a protege to, to Trent Dilfer who runs the Elite 11. Jordan's been very hands-on with some of these guys. And quite honestly, you know, and I think I said this to you, uh, uh, you know, offline, you know, a lot of people are going to be making comments you know, including us, you know, with our, you know, kind of feelings on some of these quarterbacks who we've never seen play in actual games. Shane Bouchelle is one of them. Another one will be uh, DeAndre Francois at Florida State. Jordan Palmer knows them better than anybody we could probably have on because he worked with them uh, throughout the Elite 11 process. It wasn't just for a couple of days and is connected to them. So, so, uh, in addition to that, some of these other guys he's, he's spent a long time around, Deshaun Kaiser, uh, Max Brown, Deshaun Watson. So we're going to have Vaughn, Aaron Jordan now to kind of fill us in on some of the, some of the particulars. Okay, Stu, so without further ado, let's bring on Jordan Palmer. Jordan, thanks for joining us on the Audible. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. How's it going? It's going well. It's going good, George. Yeah. So Stu and I have talked a little bit about, about the Notre Dame uh, news with Max Redfield over the, over the weekend. Uh, your perspective is pretty unique on the quarterback battle there. You know both Malik Zaire uh, and Deshaun Kaiser really well. You know Brandon Wimbush really well, too, you know, as well. Um, what did you make of the quarterback news there when they said both guys will play? Well, you know, I think I think it's interesting because um, you know there's there's a lot of with what's happening right now with a lot of these quarterback deals. There's there is an element of politics involved, and you know, if I'm Brian Kelly and Malik Sayer gets hurt, Deshaun Kaiser comes in and takes the job. I don't I don't want a, a quarterback or a player at a key position like quarterback to lose his job due to injury. And so it makes it really tough when you have Malik battling back from an injury. It's hard to just go with someone else because from a recruiting standpoint, you know, that allows a lot of other schools to sit there and go, Hey man, they, they replace guys. You know, if you get hurt, you're out. Um, From my understanding, you know, it was, it was pretty close, but it's hard to compare those two guys. Um, I mean, Deshaun's 6'5", 245 and can run. Um, And I think with Deshaun, he, he offers a better opportunity to open up the offense. I think he's further along. Um, in terms of understanding the intricacies of the playbook. Um, and with Malik, uh, you know, you, you get a lot of uh, uh, improvisation and his ability to extend the play. 
Um, but two great kids, two really talented guys, just very different styles. Um, and, and lastly, you know, I've heard some, some murmurs that uh, the most talented quarterback on the roster is Brandon Wimbush. So that's going to be something really interesting to watch down the road uh, when they get past the season. Yeah, I was at Notre Dame at one of their practices last week. They all looked good. Wimbush not getting as many reps, obviously, as the other two. Um, this is a unique two-quarterback situation because, you know, you said they're different size, but this is not a, uh, you know, Chris Leak, Tim Tebow situation where they're drastically different styles. Do you, you know, in your experience, either maybe being part of one or watching one, you know, how feasible is it for two guys to rotate in and out for – uh, a long period of time and have success with that. I think it's tough. I hate it. Um, I, it as a quarterback, man, you got to get a rhythm. You got to know that, you know, Hey, we went three and out on this last drive, but I've got a lot more drives today. You know, it, it, I think it puts quarterbacks in a situation where they, they try and force it. If you've got the curl and you've got the flat and you're not sure if uh, you have the next series or not, you're always going to throw the curl. And sometimes that's going to be forced in there. So um, I, I don't like it. I think also the the other 10 guys in the huddle need to see the same guy every single time. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, every, every play matters, you know, in college football, you don't, you only get so many snaps. And, and so any of these little things like who's calling the play and who's in right now, uh, that changes the energy level in the huddle that changes uh, different people's opinions and, and I think it's a really tough situation. So my hope is that one of those guys just separates himself week one and they can hurry up and, and pick a starter. One of the guys I, I know you've seen a lot of that most people haven't, and there's a lot of expectations in Tallahassee. Everybody's back on offense. There's a lot of talent on defense. Most people have kind of figured, okay, this is going to be the chance. DeAndre Francois is going to take it and run with it. Sean McGuire is injured for – out for the opener, maybe the first couple of games anyway. You've worked with DeAndre. Compare him to some of the other Elite 11 quarterback talent-wise and skill set-wise that you've seen. You know, DeAndre's up there. He uh, Obviously, he can he can run around and make plays, but he's got a really, really quick release. And uh, so, so that's just a thing that's really easy to say. You know, this guy's a really quick release. Um but if you think about the situation that he's in right now, he has no experience. He's playing on a good team. He does not know the playbook as well, um, just from experience and all that stuff with Sean McGuire. And so um, they have to have limited packages, I would assume, for a guy who's, who's coming in with his experience level. So when you have a quick release and when you're really mobile, it, it allows you to play the game where that, the quarterback doesn't have to execute that play perfectly. It doesn't have to go from one to two to three to four, find the check down, rhythm, footwork, all that stuff. Footwork can be off a little bit. You can have a limited amount of plays in. Um, but when you have a really quick release and you're really athletic and you play at an early age, that, that is the recipe for success at an early age. I don't care if that's Johnny Manziel winning the Heisman as a freshman um, or a lot of these guys that are playing early now. If you have a quick release and you're mobile, it allows you to get away with some things that you can't get away with uh, without. And so I think uh, he's in a position where I think he's going to run around and make some plays. And, and uh, with as much talent around him, that can, that can turn into momentum really, really quickly. Um, another guy uh, that you know that won the starting quarterback job over the weekend, USC's Max Brown. And 
one of the things people have talked about is how rare it is these days for a guy who was as highly regarded as he was as a recruit, five-star guy, to kind of patiently wait his turn. I mean, this is his fourth year now at USC. He's finally getting the job. Um, what can you tell us a little bit about him? I mean, other than people who follow recruiting closely, um, when he steps on the field at Alabama, it'll be the first time we've seen him. Yeah, it is interesting. People forget Max Brown came out the same year as Jared Goff and Christian Hackenberg. So, and Luke Del Rio, who's getting a chance to start for the first time as well. So, um, it is a different path. Uh, but with Max, you know, I mean, he's been patient. He's always been a student of the game. He's always said, I'm going to hang my hat on understanding the intricacies of the offense and where I'm going to deploy the ball and all those types of, um, looking at it from that vantage point. And so with Max, I think he's just in a perfect situation to come in here and relax and just play. Um, from my understanding, you know, and I talked to, um, to Max this weekend, I talked to Sam Darnold last night. Um, it sounds like Clay said, this is our guy and we're going to go with them. It's not what Notre Dame's doing. So of, of all the times in Max's career, it really should just, uh, for as much pressure as there seems to be playing quarterback at a school like USC, uh, it really is a low-pressure situation for him to just come in, relax, and play because he's essentially over-prepared for this. Uh, we see a lot of guys play early, and that's typically what we talk about. You reference it, that this is a little different, the path. But the reality is he's over-prepared for this. And so uh, the guy that he's going to line up and play against in Alabama, he's got a significantly more experience then. So um, I think he's actually in a great position to come in here and have success. You know, you've been around him, not just when he was a, a quarterback through the Elite 11, but I know he's been a counselor. He was out there. You've seen him, uh, I thought, you know, at some point this summer. How have you seen him grow from where he was physically, not just maybe adding some weight, but where he was, you know, four years ago? Yeah, um, I had him and, and Sam Darnold um, came out and spent four or five days with me uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, watching the two of them side by side, and, and with Max, you know, I just think he has just such a command of of where he's supposed to go with the ball. Um, and he, you know, he's still evolving as a passer too. When it comes to spinning it and driving the ball down the field, um, I think he's he's still evolving. So he's not even necessarily a finished product yet. Um, but you know, I think from a confidence level, he's just in a place where uh, he knows he can succeed. And so, uh, yeah, he's added weight. He's gotten uh, better at spinning it, and he's grown as a passer. But really, it's just about deciding. It, 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 you're more of a decision maker than anything. And when he's got as many weapons as he does at USC, um, the thing that you want to, you know, put an emphasis on is going to the right place with the ball, more so than how it looks when you throw it. And I think he's going to, you know, be going, making good decisions, going to the right place with the ball, uh, delivering it accurately. And and that's kind of what all you need to do at USC when you've got a pretty good defense and some and some wide receiver talent. There's some guys that we've all heard of that have made had great careers at USC just by doing that. So the opposite path of, of a Max Brown who waited four years is Shane Bouchelle. Texas hasn't officially named him the starter. We assume they will soon. Um, he will, if he does, he will start opening week as a true freshman at a program like Texas against Notre Dame. Um, from your experience, do you think he'll be ready for that? What kind of you know, what can what can any school realistically expect from a true freshman starter? Whatever you can expect from a true freshman, whatever the most is, is what you can expect from Shane Michelle as a true freshman. Um, I spent a lot of time with Shane. Shane, um, he's littler than everyone thinks. He's a little guy. 
but he is a fiery competitor. He is far more mature than the kids his age. Um, his pedigree is damn near second to none. I don't remember exactly what it is, but I know his dad played in Major League Baseball. All of his uncles played Major League Baseball. Apparently, he was a damn good baseball player and chose football. Um, this guy expect this, this is like a McCaffrey family type expectations, and uh, I think Shane would come in and light it up. What's fun too for the Texas fans because I still I, I played uh, pro ball with a lot of different Texas uh, Longhorns. You know, Sed Benson, Quan Cosby, Jordan Shipley's still one of my best buddies. And um, there's a little excitement level, uh, a little excitement going on in Austin right now, because if you think about it, um, you know, Shane really is the closest thing to Colt McCoy. He looks like him. He's from a similar town. He runs around and makes plays, you know. So uh, I think uh, Austin's pretty excited to watch Shane come in and deal. Uh, physically, I remember he, he wasn't very big when I saw him at Elite 11 last summer, but he was, you did think he was very accurate. What are the areas besides just playing experience that you think, okay, this is what they may have to work around from him? Can he make every throw they're going to ask him to do? Can he, can he, um, obviously you don't want him taking a pounding with that stature. You don't want anybody taking a pounding, but what are the, where, where is he in terms of what, what the expectations are and how much will they manage it for him? You know, I, I think, um, the difference between, yeah, he's not that big. The difference between him and somebody who's 10 or 15 pounds heavier, um, it really doesn't make that big of a difference. I mean, these guys are attacking you. They still, whether they have 80 pounds on him or 100 pounds on him, it doesn't make really that big a difference. It really comes down to how he plays the game and how he protects himself. And uh, being that he is a really smart guy, he's not going to be careless and reckless with his body. He understands that, um, that he's got a beating. He's got a beating coming his way. And so, um, for him, and, and we may talk about it a little bit too, that there is a way to play the game. If you guys notice, um, Russell Wilson, I know he's strong. And I know he looks like a running back. Nobody ever gets a clean shot on Russell. So the reason we never talk about Russell Wilson having nagging injuries, and we have with RG3 and a lot of these other guys who run around, is, is he protects himself. You know, he doesn't take those extra hits. When at the end of Vic's career, that's all everyone was talking about. And uh, I think Shane has a good understanding of that. And so I don't really see it as being a big issue. I think he's just the type of guy who can play and protect himself. The quarterback who will get the most attention going into the season, obviously, Deshaun Watson. Um, if, if people didn't know about him before the national title game against Alabama, they do now. What is the next? What do you think is the next step in his development? I mean, everybody is already talking about him as the number one pick, but... I think even he would say he's not necessarily a uh, completely finished product yet. No, definitely not. Um, but I will say this about Deshaun. I spent a lot of time with Deshaun over the years, and, and particularly this offseason. And I think the thing that I learned about Deshaun that was new information to me was um, how advanced he is um, in his football football information. Um He's. They teach really good football at Clemson. You know, I, I would watch it on TV, and it looks like it's dink and dunk and throwing screens and driving the ball down the field. Um, but he knows a lot more football than a lot of college football players. I probably worked with 25 guys, all are starters, in college this year, and he's at the top in terms of his understanding. Forget what he did on the field. Just in terms of his understanding of football, 
a part of that is a reflection of, on him and him being intelligent, but it's really more of a reflection on, on what he's been exposed to. So Deshaun is, uh, Deshaun's pretty advanced um, with football. I think the, the jump from college to NFL is not going to be as drastic for him. But uh, the other thing is, is, is uh, you know, Deshaun can actually make every throw and actually understands every throw. So at Clemson, his video production, um, uh, video, you know, video guy at Clemson put together a cool reel, and it was just comparing Brady and Deshaun. So it would show a clip of Brady throwing this route, Deshaun throwing the same route. Brady throwing this route, Deshaun throwing the same route. Literally every single throw in the playbook, from like a five-yard stick route to the tight end, to a screen, to a cover two hole shot 30 yards down the field. And now you can put those highlights together and you can go, oh, man, they look the same. But I would say, like, no, he looks the same. He just gets it out quicker, and he's a little bit more accurate when you actually line up all the throws. So Deshaun has the full catalog of throws, touch, firm with an arc, can drive it. Um, So it's easy to watch him run around and make plays and look at his stats. Um, But I think that if he ran a 4-9-8-40, I think he would be just as productive. When you looked at that, and, and as we said earlier, you were a guy who has, has helped get guys ready for the NFL draft. You had Blake Bortles a few years ago. Um, what, how much under center is he? Is that going to be the biggest thing that, that whoever works with him before the draft, whether it's this offseason, which we assume it probably will be, will that be, the, will be one of the bigger you know, points of emphasis for him? What else will he, will he have to uh, kind of really go to school on to, to kind of allay some fair fears, maybe whatever concerns NFL people may have about projecting him? Yeah, um, I, I've, and I've been doing it for years, and, and at least one of the things that you get out of just doing, around it, doing it for a couple of years is, is I understand the questions that they're going to ask and what are the concerns for these GMs. Um, I think he'll be as surefire as a number one pick as we've had, you know, this last year with Jared and Carson going really high. And I mean, I was with Jared last night um, and the other Rams quarterbacks and even talking to him, um, you know, it was still, it wasn't so clear cut on every single person's board. And there was some, uh, there was a lot more that went into those decisions uh, even when I was with Blake, you know, he went number three overall. There were still a lot of people that were surprised. I think this will be as clear as clear cut and as surefire as we've seen probably since Andrew Luck, because um, there's just really hard to poke holes in Deshaun's game. Um, but the second, the, the second part of that answer in terms of what um, what he, he needs to work on at that point is really just putting together the full verbiage of an entire NFL system. And so, in their system, they have some very short, easy you know, get all the receivers on the same page, very short verbiage. But I mean, I'll give you an example of an NFL play, um, you know, a red zone play uh, would be H set to gun spread, right? H hot dual China drive F read alert Mustang dragon on a white one. So there's two plays in there. There's China drive F read, F read, and there's alert Mustang dragon. And we're doing it on a white one. There's just a lot to that play. And you don't learn that play by staring at it and memorizing it. So I think with Deshaun, to get to the next step for him after college is going to be laying that foundation um, from a verbiage aspect uh, and being able to articulate it and not just say it and, and execute it, but actually see that. And, you know, in college, it's very, very simple. It's straight to the point. It's line up here and go there. And so I think that'll be the evolution of Deshaun um, 
is uh, is on the verbiage side and being able to really kind of really truly open up the playbook. Jordan, my last thing would just be a more general question. Um, this, you know, it seems like in the last five years or so, there's been an explosion of, you know, we, we just in the course of this interview, we've named a whole bunch of standout college quarterbacks that, that work with you. There's others that work with other quarterback coaches. And I feel like it's a fairly recent development. Obviously, Bruce wrote a whole book about it. What I've always been curious about is how do you manage, uh, if you're working with whoever, you know, Deshaun Watson, whoever in the summer, how do you manage or balance the way you teach and the things you want to emphasize with the guy's quarterback coach back at his school that he's working with the other um, nine months out of the year? No, that's a good question. And, and honestly, I'm, I'm in cahoots with these, with the coaches. I mean, um, I had, a, you know, a head coach call me and say, can I send my guy to you? I said, perfect. What do you want me to work on? With? Um, and so I try and collaborate with, with those guys. And also, I'm more or less on the, when I go on the whiteboard with these guys, um, I'm trying to just open it up and expose them. You know, you always, if you have a goal in mind, you know, if your goal is to win the championship, you can visualize that. You've seen the national championship before. You know what it looks like. But when these college kids, they say when they want to play in the NFL, but they have no idea what that looks like. Just watching a game doesn't tell you what it's like. And so when I can get on the board and show you, well, here are some coverages that you're going to see in the NFL. Here are some, some fronts and some protections that you're going to see. It allows them to go, whoa, okay, well, I'm a ways away. Or I'm not that far away. And so I try and provide that. Um, and when it comes to on the field, um, I, I believe there's three types of throws in football. You drive it, you layer it, and you throw a touch. Just like on a golf course, you tee it off, you have all your irons, you essentially do the same thing. And then if you can do both of those things well, but you can't putt, then you can't play. So there's three elements of your game. So I build all my stuff around developing all three of those throws for those guys which work in any system with any you know run game play action footwork any concepts um and then i i pepper them with questions on their playbook to make sure that they understand the intricacies of it and where some opportunities to find more completion so i work with the guys with their staffs um you know i don't really compare what i do to anybody else it's very specific very different um, and stems, this is not my full-time job. This all stems from me. Just, I just love helping out these younger guys. And I was so lucky to have Carson as an older brother, um, who did all this for me, uh, that I just love being a resource for them. All right. Well, Jordan, we would love to uh, kind of tap into your, your perspective and your expertise as the season wears on. Obviously, you know, some of these guys a lot better than almost anybody else we could have on. And it's going to be fun to watch them, watch them, uh, you know, see the real product on the field finally. Because I, I know for a lot of these guys, whether it's Francois, whether it's Shane Bouchel, it's just like we've heard so much and actually see how it fits together with the teams and the personnel around them. Uh, you know, it's just it's one of the cool things about college football. There's an element of discovery that you don't really quite have the same thing you have with the NFL. Yeah. You know, and it's and it's really as any person's game. I mean, there's I can tell you one of eight teams that are probably going to win the Super Bowl. And, and uh, but with this playoff picture, even examples like Clemson, you know, it's so easy to go, well, Clemson's, you know, they played in it last year. They should be surefire. Yeah, but they have a really weak schedule, which means they're going to not really play a formidable opponent until the playoffs, of which we know who it is. That's an easy team to get knocked out if they haven't played big time, big time, tough games like they did last year. So I think it's really anybody's to take. And, um, I'm just fired up to let him get on the field and, and figure it out. 
Well, we appreciate all all the insight on these guys, Jordan, and we hope to uh, have you on again soon. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, that was great. I I feel like I know a lot more now about uh, some of these guys, like you said, who we haven't actually seen on the field yet. And also interesting that he is uh, not a fan of that Notre Dame uh, two-quarterback rotation that we talked about. We mentioned earlier that they checked in at number 10 in the AP preseason poll that came out on Sunday. So this is our first chance to react to the poll in general. It was uh, number one, Alabama, number two, Clemson, number three, Oklahoma, number four, Florida State, number five, LSU, and I'll finish out the top ten, number six, Ohio State, number seven, Michigan, number eight, Stanford, number nine, Tennessee, and number ten, Notre Dame. Anything jump out to you there? Not really. Um, they had Ohio State probably higher. They would have them higher than I would have them, but uh, beyond that, not much. The thing that kind of I did notice was a little curious on was that the media is quite a bit higher on UCLA, and maybe that's the Josh Rosen factor, than the coaches were. Uh, media has, or the, the, the AP has UCLA at 16, whereas the coaches had UCLA at 24. Um, and maybe there was a little more buy-in on, the, on Washington and Louisville. Um, and, but that was about it, really, that caught my eye. You? And, and just the top 10 doesn't surprise me at all. And in fact, Phil Steele came out and said that he uh, bragged about the fact that he predicted the exact order of the AP poll six months ago. Um, you know, I could get into underrated, overrated, but frankly, everybody that's been listening to the podcast knows that, for example, I'm down on Georgia or uh, down on Michigan State and Ole Miss, up on Washington, and so on and so forth. I want to talk to you about a specific team, and that is Oklahoma. I have noticed a maybe a resurgence in expectation for the Sooners, and I was a little surprised to see them check in at number three uh, in the AP poll. I thought Florida State would be higher and maybe even LSU. Now you could say, what's the difference between three and five? But A playoff spot? <laughs> yeah, well, in the preseason, yes. Big difference at the end of the year. Um, it just feels like for the last, I don't know, six, seven years, Whenever Bob Stoops' team is ranked very high in the preseason, it does not live up to expectations. Last year was the first year in a while that, his, that expectations were relatively low coming off that awful bowl game, and that was the year that they rose up and made the playoff. And I just, I don't know. I wonder if this is setting up for another disappointment. Yeah, you know, I was in Norman uh, last week, and, you know, Baker Mayfield looked terrific. They have definitely really good skill talent. Uh, yeah, they lost Sterling Shepard, but I think they have a deep and very athletic and a big receiving core. The offensive line is is young, but it, it certainly looks the part. I think the question mark really is, you know, is the defense going to be going to be good enough? I don't think it needs to be it needs to be what Alabama's defense is. I don't think the expectation will be quite that high. But, you know, last year I was at the Orange Bowl and, and, and Deshaun Watson lit them up and, and they really just couldn't respond for four quarters. And we'll see. I mean, I am going to pick the Sooners to make the playoff. I kind of waffled on it, but it was, it's interesting to see them one day and then literally see the team they're going to open with the next day, and that's Houston. And Houston – Physically on the defensive line, definitely looks the part. 
uh, and other places. And they have some good size and everything where I thought there was a big difference between the two was in terms of the skill talent around the quarterback. That that to me was very noticeable between OU and and it's not to say that certain teams aren't going to, you know, you could have a, a, a better team than somebody and then all of a sudden in one area they're deficient and you're, you have a strength. But I just thought that's the part where I was like, hey, maybe Oklahoma – Maybe I'm underselling them a little bit. I got to see a bunch of you know, th- you know, three very good teams in a row, and that was what stuck out to me with Oklahoma. Well, yeah, Oklahoma. That's the area that you're the least concerned about. You know, they have offensive firepower. Um, they did obviously lose Sterling Shepard, but it sounds they might not be another guy who's going to be that much of a go-to guy as Sterling Shepard. But from what you saw, it seems like they've got no shortage of receivers for Mayfield to work with, right? Yeah, and I think what, what what to me stood out is they can beat you in a couple of different ways, whereas, you know, if you try to put pressure on Mayfield because he gets it off quick, because he can beat you, beat you, you know, with his legs, there's just a lot of different, they have a lot of different answers. I mean, what, what I think more teams are going to do is try to, to try to contain him in the pocket so the rush won't be as much. And I still think, you know, he's smart enough and he's really accurate that he can beat people. And they have guys, whether it's, you know, D.D. Westbrook or Mark Andrews, they have, they have guys who can beat you down the field who are really big, explosive guys uh, in this, you know, of all, of all sizes, really. And that's what stood out. Again, I don't know how good the defense is going to be. They have, you know, they lost Eric Stryker, who was a really, you know, is a playmaker for them and relentless pass rusher. You know, you look, uh, you know, eyeball them, and they still have, you know, a bunch of guys in their front four who, in their, you know, defensive front who look like they can play. I just, um, you know, you just wonder, okay, is there going to be a guy who the opponent has to really make sure they game plan around in that in that front seven and i'm not sure there's a guy like that right now and that's my concern with ou and whether or not they're going to actually live up to a preseason number three ranking it's definitely not offense uh it's defense and replacing all of those guys because um, they did have a really good defense last year they um you know playing against some obviously some some high-powered offenses in the big 12 of course that uh, didn't hold up against Clemson, but you know what? Not many people did stop Clemson uh, on offense last season. So I heard you say that I got to see three really good teams last week. The third was Texas A&M. Texas A&M in this AP poll uh, did not crack the top 25. Now note that uh, Baylor did, Oregon did, Oklahoma State did, Florida. Uh, Texas A&M actually got, they are 27th. They actually had fewer votes than Miami, a team that I personally think is going to have a bit of a rebuilding situation this year. Um, in your opinion, after seeing A&M, would you have them ranked in the poll? Yes, I think they're better than every team you just mentioned. I think they're more talented than every team you just mentioned. Uh, you know, you talk to, to – I got the chance to see them. I got a chance to spend some time around the staff. They first of all, they have a a fantastic group of receivers. I mean, they are big and very, very talented. And that's with Christian Kirk. That's with Josh Reynolds. You know, they have they have if Speedy Noel, who's had a pretty good camp, if he has matured some, now he's not going to play you know early on because of suspension. But if he if the light actually has come on, 
he adds another dimension. I think they're, they're running backs. They have a bunch of guys. I'm not sure there's one guy, but I think they'll be fine. Uh, Trevor Knight has been very accurate. They're excited about him, especially his leadership. One of the guys, and I, I, this, is a, this is a kind of a mockable comment, but I'm going to just put it out there and you, know, you tell me what you think. One of the guys on their staff said to me, he goes, you know, when I see Trevor Knight and how the team responds to him and what he's like in the locker room, I kind of think that's probably what Tim Tebow was like. Really? Yeah. That's a bold statement. Yeah, just in terms of just this aura that he has that guys respond to him. And he's very clean cut and, you know, he's, he's a guy who's done a lot of really good charity work off the field. But that's that's kind of uh, one of the vibes they get. Now, defensively was the part where I feel like it's, it's you know, taken a big step forward. We uh, I didn't get a chance to see much of Miles Garrett, but the defensive line, you know, around him is very, very good. The linebackers are the area. Watch out for uh, uh, Tyrell Dodson, who was a big-time recruit you know, from Tennessee who came in. They are raving about how he looked in a scrimmage. I mean, he looks like an SEC linebacker right now. And I think they're, they're, they're light years better than they've been since Sumlin's been there in the secondary. And that, that had really been one of the Achilles heels. That, and I think what, what helps them a lot is they had a couple of really good freshmen. They have a, a freshman receiver from, like, the D.C. area who's 6'2", 210, and, you know, certainly passes the eyeball test. And that kid's been, had a pretty impressive camp. And one of the things that, you know, somebody there had told me was, you know, in, in years past, if they had, they were playing guys before they might have ha- really wanted to not, you know, you're going to play some freshmen because they're just that good. Christian Kirk would have been one of those, obviously, Miles Garrett, but some other guys where maybe they were playing before they had to just because they didn't have the, the quality depth on the two deep. And they say they don't have to do that. Like that receiver I'm talking about. You know he can probably redshirt this year or play a play a smaller role just because they now have you know the roster maturity that they didn't have. Now I'm not saying that they're gonna. I know last year you put all their chips in the table on A and M. I'm not going that far in. I think they probably win nine games though, and I think this will be the best team they've had since Manziel's first year there. So I'm with you, but let's. I can I can actually see the eyes rolling among the people that are listening to this. What is your counter to the people who will inevitably say, well, I've heard this before, every year A&M starts out high in the rankings and wins, and then they just fold down the stretch once they start playing the better teams in the SEC? I think it's two things. The first one is the Trevor Knight edition. They're not breaking in a new quarterback. I mean, that's basically what they were doing the last two years, whether it was Kenny Hill, you know, when he lit up an overrated, you know, South Carolina team, or it was young Kyle Allen and then Kyler Murray. I mean, you know, we, this has been said a, a bunch on this podcast before, but you know, Trevor Knight did beat Alabama in a bowl game a few years ago. His maturity, I think, is a big difference. And the other thing I think that's a difference is I think they're a physically tougher team now than they were just because of the maturity they have where it's not just, hey, we're relying on so many young players now. And whether they're young players who are second-year sophomores or or freshmen like they were the before. So I think that those are the two big areas where it's different. Again, I'm not picking them to crack the Alabama LSU top, but I, I'm stopping short of that. But I do think they are. I do think they're, they're better than, than, uh, 
than a lot of people are willing to, to sign on. Let me ask you this. When I did my, uh, and your predictions went up earlier than mine did, I did my team-by-team team predictions of the SEC. The team I looked at as my flop uh, was Auburn. I don't even have them going to a bowl game. Am I, am I crazy for that? No. Um, let me ask you, though, one quick th- – I'm going to get to Auburn in a second. But here's my A&M thing. And I picked A&M to go 9-3, and so we're kind of on the same page. The, what I worry about is that we're putting too much stock into Trevor Knight. You mentioned his Alabama performance. I want to read to you his career stats because that was just mm-hmm. one game. Three seasons at OU, he, his completion percentage ranged from 55% to 59%. Um, in the one season he played the most in 2014, his TD to interception ratio was 14 to 12. So I, I agree a hundred percent that he's a great leader and that that's exactly what they need. But I think we're all kind of, you know, maybe being a little too optimistic about what he can actually do on the field. You know, I think, I think he'll be better than that. This is a, you know, as yeah, there was Sterling Shepard before this is a, this is a better group of receivers than he's ever had. You know, I think that, um, again, I'm not saying he's going to win the Heisman. I don't think they need him to be to do the stuff Johnny Manziel did. I don't think he needs to be the guy who torched Alabama like he did. But, again, you know, he got beat out by, by you know, one of the three best quarterbacks in college football last year. So I don't think there's any shame in that. Okay, so but, to your point about Auburn, uh, Paul Feinbaum had me on his show after my SEC predictions went up, and his listeners are pretty uh, ruthless in their criticism of them. They don't think I got a single team right, it seems like, other than, of course, Alabama. And, you know, I made the point, like, when you do these, you know, you got to – the records have got to head up to 500. And, sure, when I started doing it, I don't know that I – like, for instance, Mississippi State, who I have seventh, two and six in the conference, six and six overall. I don't know if people know this. But Which is the exact record I have, so. Yeah, well, I don't know if people know this. Mississippi State has never finished seventh under Dan Mullen. They've never even finished sixth. Um, every year I feel like they get picked to finish seventh, and they don't. So I don't feel particularly good about that. But somebody's got to finish seventh. Maybe – now, you th- you have Auburn not making the bowl, so you have them seventh. I do. So I yeah. have them sixth, three and five, six and six overall, which might get Gus Malzahn canned. But I'm with you. I don't – with every one of these SEC West teams, like we just talked about all the reasons for optimism surrounding A&M. I could give you reasons for optimism around Arkansas, who I think is going to be a lot better than people think. I could give you reasons for optimism about Ole Miss, though I'm thinking they might take a little step back. What If you're an Auburn fan, what are you hanging your hat on right now? Because the quarterback situation doesn't seem like it's gotten any better. The top running back was kicked off the team. The you know Gus Malzahn said he thinks he had one of the best defensive lines in college football, and he may be right, but I don't know about the rest of the defense. You know, I'd like to see them turn it around. And in fact, the recent history of Auburn is that they yo-yo back and forth between great seasons and bad seasons. But they're arguably the only team in the division that I don't have a good – if I said they're going to go 9-3, and I wouldn't have a good reason to say so. Yeah, I mean I look at a couple of factors here, and and I agree with a lot of what you just said. I would add on the defense, you know, I I don't necessarily know if they've upgraded coordinator-wise. You know, I – I would argue that LSU did, but I, but now that coordinator, and I'm not saying Kevin Steele doesn't know what he's doing, but you know, Gus Miles on, or, I'm sorry, uh, Will Muschamp, that was really the first bad defense he's had, and you could see a lot of frustration. And yeah, they they do have good personnel on the D line. You know what? 
so does so do a lot of people in that in that division. You know, A and M has really good personnel. Alabama has really good personnel on the D line. I mean, you know, Arkansas has some some studs on the D line. So does Ole Miss. So uh, when I looked at this, and just in terms of you have a coach who is seat is getting warm, they open up at home, but it's against Clemson. Do you think they're going to beat Clemson? I do not. I don't. I think they may be competitive for a half, but I I don't think they're going to win that. Then they play Arkansas State. Arkansas State's not a cakewalk, but I think they'll beat Arkansas State. Then they get A&M at home. I think A&M is going to beat them. Now, if they win that game, hey, that changes the tenor. They lose to A&M. Now you're talking one and two with LSU coming up, and I think they're going to lose to LSU. Yeah, they need to. And then you're one and three. For him to have any hope of a good season, they've got to beat one of the, they got to win one of those two swing games right so if they're one in, let's say that they are one in three if they're one in three the noise will be so loud it'll just it's going to be loud they, not only that they keep in mind you're one in three and you still have to go on the road to alabama to georgia to old miss and they still have to play you know i don't know i don't think mississippi state without prescott is going to be as good but it's still a road game i mean I don't, you know, and they have Arkansas. I looked at this and just thought, you know what? I I see them either, you know, five and seven or six and six. And I think if you get off to a bad start when you have a lot of staff uncertainty, which they do, you know, I think Auburn has a has a has a potential to implode there. Real quick, uh, so you, your conference standings, you know, for each conference are going up this week. Mine went up last week. I don't think you could possibly if, – if I had to tell you one team in the country whose, uh, stand, whose place I predicted got the most um, backlash from their fans, I don't think you could guess. It would be picking Virginia Tech to go 5-7 and seven and finish 6th in the uh, ACC Coastal. You would think that I picked a team that went 10-2 and two last year to go 5-7, and seven, not a team that was lucky – or not lucky, but fortunate to get to 6-6. Six and six. Um the Virginia Tech fans not pleased with me, but I think Justin Fuente will do a really good job there. I, I just, I guess, I didn't, I didn't see what was so outlandish about that. They were six and six a year ago. Huge coaching, coaching change um, that may take a little bit of time to to adjust. And I, you know, the fact that their true freshman quarterback is working is suddenly part of the competition when they didn't expect him to be doesn't necessarily bode well either. Do you have a sense? I don't know if you've yeah, done your ACC I mean, picks yet and to know where you think. I have not. My Big Ten ones go up tomorrow. I mean, I'll get to the ACC. I think where you have a couple of combinations of why the, why the frustration with you is there. First of all, it's a new coach. People are trying to be very optimistic, and you're undermining it personally. Uh, there's that. And I think they're, they're in a division where there's a lot of toss-up games, and it sounds like you're not giving them the benefit of the doubt on almost any of those toss-up games. That's true. Uh, I got Pitt winning the division at 6-2, and 9-3. and three. I got UNC also going 6-2, and 10-2, and two, but Pitt with the tiebreaker. Oh, uh, Miami fans also not happy about 7-5, and five, which is a little bizarre since that's about what they go every year these days. You know, the team that's always so tough to predict in that division is Georgia Tech. They were terrible last year. Yeah. I wouldn't put anything past Paul Johnson. I got him getting up to six and six. Duke six and six. Virginia Tech five and seven. Virginia three and nine. It'll be much different. <laughs> It'll play out much differently. That's a tough division to predict. Um, what do you think about my pick, my pit uh, division champ pick? I don't think it's crazy. I mean, I'm not. I'm. I'm not sure what you're going to get from quarterback play, but they have a deep backfield. I think obviously having James Conner back makes it even better. 
Narduzzi is a, is a really good defensive coach. And I think with Jordan Whitehead and some of the athleticism they have back there, I mean, I think that's as good a that's as good a flyer as you can have. I mean, that's the thing with when you have such a kind of a mediocre division, you can almost you know tap any horse, and it seems it'll seem crazy to some people, and it'll seem it'll seem you know like you can't be right until the end of the year, kind of thing. Right. Well, you know, the safe pick there would have been UNC repeating, and now Teddy's going to edit like edit me to sound terrible on this podcast, but. Uh, and I think they'll be really good, too. Uh, we shall see. So your predictions are going up throughout the week. So why don't we do this? Why don't we revisit this topic later in the week? And I'm going to have a prediction that in there, which I almost walked back. It's not. It's going to come in my Big Ten picks, um, which I know we'll have to Northwestern to the Rose Bowl. No, not quite. Not that one. Okay. Uh, no, I'm interested to see that. So why don't we... Go over both of our predictions in the second half of the week. And also, obviously, send your emails. We will get to your emails. You send them to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And as always, if you love the Audible like we do, uh, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app and tell 10 of your friends to do so as well. We'll see you next time.